Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week, Roger is joined by Wall Street Journal columnist Walter Russell Mead. Walter is a distinguished fellow in strategy and statesmanship at the Hudson Institute. He's also a professor at the Bard College in New York. He's the author of a number of books, including Special Providence, American Foreign Policy, and How It Changed the World. Roger and Walter discuss how the modern Republican Party came into being, the different ways Americans approach foreign policy, and how the Biden administration sees the world. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Walter Russell Mead, welcome to the Reaganism podcast. Hey. Thank you for, for joining. Um, we read your stuff regularly at the Reagan Institute. Uh, of course, a uh, well-known columnist for the Wall Street Journal prior to that, Yale. But one thing I saw in the bio is that you're born to the son of a priest in South Carolina. So from uh, South Carolina to Yale to the Wall Street Journal, how did all that, your childhood and, and, and life, I guess, in the, in the church, uh, kind of shape your thinking uh, as a person who writes about global affairs for the journal today? Well, I suppose, you know, being the son of an Episcopal priest is a, uh, it's not a good way to inherit a trust fund, but it's, it's <laughs> a good way to have a really interesting life because there was a, my dad had a parish in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and a British doctor, Ilsley Ingram, came over to UNC. The University of North Carolina had bred uh, dogs with hemophilia, and he came to study them. So he went to my father's church, good Anglican, um, and they were—they didn't necessarily like their rector at the time back in the UK. So they, they were trying to, you know, get a little relief. They organized a swap, and we went over and lived in uh, their UK rectory for a year. My dad was oh. rector of a church over there, and among other things, I was, you know, went to this nasty little prep school where they forced you to do things like study Latin and, and uh, algebra and French and beat you if you didn't behave. Uh, Thor knuckles, huh? Exactly. But also, uh, one of the members of the parish arranged for us to get tickets to see, to go to the House of Commons. Mm. And at the time, it was actually very uncommon that for kids to go to the House of Commons, only crazy Americans did things like that. So we went and we sat in the strangers gallery. This had been 1964. So we did it. This old man came and, and sat down on one of the back benches and went to sleep and everyone stood. It was Winston Churchill. Oh my goodness. So at the age of 12, I saw Winston Churchill in the House of Commons. I later went back and, and tried to look this up. This would be one of his last probably two appearances. In I was going to say it's late. It's late. Exactly. And I think I was the only kid in the room, which means, you know, unless I fall over tomorrow, I have a shot at living to be the last living person who saw Winston Churchill on the floor of the House of Commons. There we go. Uh, another distinction for you, Walter. 
Right. But I'd say even, you know, even for a 12 year old, that was that, you know, you, you, you felt like, okay, this is history. This is history. Um, Going off I, script here. Cause I just got to know uh, Churchill backbench, elderly Churchill sleep. Did he fall asleep with the cigar in his mouth? No cigar, no smoking on the floor of the house, even in the old days. Even in the old days, okay. All right. They had to go outside to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then going back, before you go to the UK, you mentioned UNC, uh, Chapel Hill. I haven't seen this in your columns. Perhaps you've commented on it and I've missed it. Roy Williams has retired. Hubert Davis has taken over for the UNC college basketball program. I assume you're a Carolina fan, unless you rejected all of that. How do you feel? Okay. Well, hopeful. We'll see. But I have to be very careful what I say because my sister now works at Duke. Oh, goodness. And, uh, and my favorite professor back when I was an undergrad, Richard Broadhead, was president of Duke for a while. So I have to kind of watch my Duke flank a little bit in life. Okay, you're really caught between two worlds there. Exactly. But uh, yeah, the secret, the, the, the dirty secret is I'm still a Carolina guy. All right. So you still go for the heels. All right. Well, see, uh, breaking new ground here. I don't know if you've, you've discussed it previously in your public engagement. So we'll have to this, highlight this. This may be the first time I've talked about my uh, athletic preferences on a, on a live national broadcast. So. Well, listen, if, if your readership goes down in Durham, North Carolina, just a, I apologize right now. for that. <laughs> All right. Let, let's move on to uh, other interesting things about you and, and how you've become so well known. You, you really uh, stand out uh, for as an astute observer of American foreign policy, in particular, uh, Jacksonianism, which uh, kind of regained popularity with the election of Donald Trump. Famously, President Trump put that picture of Jackson up in his office. Uh, and, you know, using that as a way to talk about American populism. Um, how does it feel to be the person who writes about that? And then every, all of a sudden, everybody kind of jumps in that bandwagon and everybody else is now claiming to be the expert in you know, populism in America. Well, um, you know, I'm, the greatest compliment you can have as a writer is when people start using a concept that you first put out there without attributing it to you. you know? <laughs> it, so, it sort of means that it's actually really made it. And people don't say Walter Mead's concept of Jacksonian foreign policy tradition. They talk about Jacksonian foreign policy. Um, so, you know, it's, I suppose it's bittersweet, like Xerox didn't want you yeah. to, you know, use <laughs> it as a generic term, but I'm, you know, I'm perfectly fine with it. Um, and, you know, I meant it to be useful and I'm glad it is. Uh, absolutely. Uh, nerding out on this a little bit more, I read Schlesinger's, I think, well-known uh, biography of, of Jackson. Um, did, did Schlesinger get Jackson right with respect to foreign policy and outlook to the world outside the United States? Well, I, Arthur Schlesinger really did not like my, my uh, portrayal of, of Jackson. Um, he was actually, I had a study group when I was, this is when I was at the Council on Foreign Relations. And Arthur was a member of the study group and a very helpful member in many ways. But he really, you know, he had sort of written about Jackson as kind of the precursor of Roosevelt. Right, the, Roosevelt. the early New Deal. Right? right. And I'm kind of writing about 
you're saying, actually, no, I, you know, at the time, this is the 80s, Reagan is actually in many ways an heir to Jackson in, in, in some ways better than Roosevelt. Well, Arthur didn't like this. <laughs> and actually, Les Gelb, who was in the, the president of the council, sent, sent the chapter of that chapter of the book out to all the members, said, this is really something you guys should take a look at. It's really fantastic. And um, uh, Schlesinger then demanded that he get be able to send a letter of rebuttal out to all the members of the council. You were threatening his Pulitzer Prize work from whatever it was right. back in the day. But I would say he was always incredibly gracious to me personally about it. You know, it was a, you you can he could disagree without being disagreeable in that sense. He actually invited me to a very nice lunch at the Century Club to talk about it. That's so, super cool. Um, well, but, well, but it's a little entirely... intimidating when you're a well, young writer and you don't have any graduate education, whatever, and the most eminent living American historian comes after you, you know, with with a with a meat axe. You do begin to wonder, like, am I have I missed something here? <laughs> well, it kind of worked out well for you, and uh, it's great that he was a gentleman about it, and you know, better be engaged than ignored, I suppose. Um, going entirely off script. Thinking about you and now you write uh, public intellectual uh, about global affairs. Schlesinger uh, also was someone who wrote uh, public intellectual and impacted, of course, served in the in the Kennedy administration. Um, what do you think the role is today for public intellectuals like yourself, yourself impacting uh, policy and, and elected leaders and, and the presidency, specifically because so much of what I associate with Jacksonianism is rejection of people like yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, you know, one of the things that, that pleased me the most about Special Providence was that members of, which is the book where I, where the I book, wrote yes. about the Jacksonians, um, that I wrote about four different schools of American foreign policy. And people associated with all four schools have come up to me more than once and said, you got us. You understand the way we think. Um, and so I wasn't at, you know, announcing my, I wasn't a pledge of allegiance to Jacksonianism that I wrote this. This is just, okay, here's a tradition in American life. It's important. It has its pluses. It has its minuses. But it's real. It's not going away. And you need to learn to deal with it. Um, so let's, let's go into the meat of that a little bit, if you don't mind, because, yeah. you know, we got the four. We got Hamiltonianism, talk about Jacksonianism, we have Jeffersonianism, and then, of course, Wilsonianism, which was a subject of a, a recent piece you wrote in, in Foreign Affairs, where uh, it was kind of the launching point for uh, addressing the Biden administration and how they view the world in an entirely quick, dirty, unfair way. Give us the, the thumbnail sketch of the, of the four approaches of foreign policy. All right, well, Hamiltonians think that uh, uh, they looked around in, in the 1790s and said, you know, what should America be like and what should American foreign policy be like? They said, well, what's the richest, most powerful liberal country on the planet? It was England. And they said, okay, so we need a Bank of the United States like the Bank of England. We need a strong Navy. We need to promote global trade. And this kind, of, and we need a strong central government that will make all this happen. The Jeffersonians look at them and said, "Are you nuts? We just had a war. Uh, <laughs> we revolted we did, against these guys. <laughs> right? We didn't want to live this way. You know, we don't want power. We don't want endless war. What we want is 
to preserve liberty. And that means keeping the government small. And that means having as little as we really can get away with having to do with other countries, particularly in terms of politics. Um, and then the Wilsonians say, uh, you know, the only way, you know, here we are a republic, we're isolated, all of these angry monarchies and they're constantly going to war. America can only be safe when we have spread American values of democracy around the world. And so don't tell me that to be idealistic is to be unrealistic. The only true realism is to support the global democratization because that's the only way to make America safe in the long run. Um, George W. Bush in his second inaugural, it's almost pure Wilsonianism, if you go back and look at that. And then finally, you have the Jacksonians. They're not trying to convert foreigners to democracy. They're, they don't really tr trust big corporations very much. Um, and they think pacifism, Jeffersonian pacifism is kind of wimpish. If, you know, they can look like Jeffersonians as long as no one is messing with the United States. Right. But if anybody attacks our honor or attacks our allies or attacks us, then we go to war and there's only one way to fight, which is to fight with everything you've got. Um, and that might mean nuclear war, anything you've got. And furthermore, if the enemy is a dishonorable enemy, they attacked without declaring war, they mistreat prisoners of war, you don't have to obey the laws of war back at them. Um, and uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's like live and let live. And then if somebody attacks you, crush them. So they will <laughs> never, 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 never again even dream of raising their hand against the United States of America. And that's a kind of a, a Jacksonian view. And meanwhile, by the way, they are perfectly fine with the government spending tons of money on the American middle class. So they, so they are not to be confused with the Jeffersonian small government. That's right. That's, you know, that's Cato Institute. You know, that's, that's small foreign policy abroad, small government at home. It's Everything kind of small. Pure play Jeffersonian. Now you get mixtures. A lot of the left yeah. is kind of, is, is an interesting mix of Wilsonian and Jeffersonian. Um, so let's democratize the world, but let's have a small defense budget. Um, so you get blends of these four schools. Um, so, you know, and I, we did have, I should say, in this year where we're all being very history conscious, and I wrote about this in Special Providence, a fifth school that used to exist, yes. the Davisonian School for Jefferson Davis. These folks believe the job of the federal government is to defend the institution of slavery. And people like John Calhoun, they wanted things like a strong Navy to keep those abolitionist Brits from interfering with slavery. And they wanted to annex uh, neighboring countries. They wanted to support slave countries like Brazil. So you have, but on the other hand, at home, they wanted a weak government because they didn't want the federal government to dream of interfering with slavery. But the Davisonian school kind of shut up after about 1865. <laughs> The Constitution. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Then I want to talk about the Republican Party today. And I'm for it, by the way. The Constitution, 100. <laughs> percent Well, but but you look at the Constitution. I'm listening to you with your very helpful archetypes and and the different approaches. And, and you're right. There's so many blends, but really helpful construct in evaluating what you're seeing. Um, does the Constitution have an a, 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 a kind of draw you to one approach more than another? 
Well, you know, that's the interesting thing is that that all of the founding fathers thought that the Constitution was flawed because none of them totally got their way. Right. You know, the the executive and the federal government are not as strong as Alexander Hamilton would have liked them to be. They are they are much stronger than Jefferson would have liked them to be. Um, so what you have in there, I think, is you have a case of the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. If if Hamilton had been able to dictate the Constitution, I'm not sure the Union would have lasted long. Ditto for Jefferson. So uh, in some ways, the, the great thing about the Constitution is that it has room for these different views of who we are as a people and who we are as a nation to coexist. So um, let's talk about the Republican Party today, which is at 2021. This is um, I'll put this in air quotes, post-Trump Republican Party. Or possibly inter-Trump. We don't there we go. But in a sense, post his, his term in office, uh, but still very much uh, involved in Im- impacting. and impacting. And where do you see the Republican Party today along the various different uh, archetypes of foreign policy? How would you, where would you peg him right now? Well, I, I think I'd take a step back from that and say that Uh, The Republican Party that we've known that basically began to take shape under Nixon and then Ronald Reagan really put it into into the White House, but also gave it a kind of a firm stamp, I think of as Sunbelt Republicanism, Hmm. that it's it's the Old South plus Texas plus California and the Mountain West. That That was the kind of Reagan coalition. And it you know, and if you look at it, uh, it was it was really not the whole, not the whole, the old South, and we're talking about the white South because unfortunately black people weren't voting in the in much in the um, in the South. So the white South, they were all Democrats until Nixon yeah, the Dixiecrats. right began to stir the pot. But within that Southern white party, there were really two parties. And since the, the pre-war Whigs and the pre-war Democrats got into, got, became the Democratic Party. And in every Southern state, the primary was the real, the Democratic primary was the real election. Sure. Now, I hate to admit this as a Southerner, but the reason for that was that um, uh, while you couldn't keep all the blacks from voting in a national election, try as you may, there were that there were all those pesky amendments, and you could only exclude them so far. Under the law at the time, the Democratic Party was a private institution like a club and could determine its own membership. So you could have a 100% white electorate choosing the the nominee, the the person to actually get the in the primary. Yeah. So that meant that but the two parties are in one and the two parties are very different. Um, and, you know, we, uh, we spent a long time talking about Southern history as all Southerners love to do. <laughs> but um, two trends in particular, there's the Huey Long populism, which really doesn't like big business, is kind of isolationist, um, much more focused on race issues, and then there's what you would call the New South movement, which are people that say, look, you know, we got to leave all that stuff behind. We've got to attract a lot of Northern capital down here by being an attractive destination for business investment, which means 
you know, not a lot of union legislation, uh, low wages, keep taxes low. Um, but also like, don't talk about that race thing. It doesn't help anybody. And, and their goal is to uplift the South through this. And the Sun Belt Republicanism is really that new South tradition. Mm-hmm. And you, you look at somebody like Newt Gingrich, he's very, very different from a Georgia politician of the 1930s. Um, Even Jesse Helms. Yeah, well, Jesse Helms has more of the old fashioned right. thing to him. He straddles a bit, but much more pro-business sure. than, than, than a lot of Southern politicians. And of course, he was a Democrat before he was a Republican. Right. Reflecting so, that. Right. So I think what happens is that un, in the George W. Bush administration, that coalition, the combination of the Iraq war and the financial crisis start pulling apart the two halves of mm-hmm. the Sun Belt coalition and the populist anti, somewhat anti-business and, you know, um, almost William Jennings Bryan and certainly Huey Long feels deeply alienated. The Bush, Texas has always been much more of a Sunbelt state, New South state. There's not much Old South in Texas. Mm-hmm. And the Bushes are about as New South as you can get. They're Yankee, they're, you know, what my grandfather would have called carpetbaggers. Right. Uh, and you know, they're only allies as well. Eastern establishment allies. relocated to Texas. Yes. So uh, that breaks down. Trump, I think, saw that. Oh, meanwhile, of course, California falls out. California used to be one of the reddest states in the union. And in general, with Colorado and so on, the the Mountain West has been leaving the so the Sunbelt Coalition is losing its more Sunbelty elements. And within the South, it's becoming the, the populists are coming back. So that Sunbelt Republicanism that Reagan really exemplified has kind of lost its grip on the Republican party. Now, what happens after that? I don't know. By the way, I think Billy Graham had a lot to do with this as well, that that Billy Graham- um, And the evangelical community more broadly. Yeah, exactly, right. So that if you go back to people like, you know, some um, uh, GK Smith and some people like that, um, fundamentalism was, uh, you know, was bitterly anti-Catholic, often anti-Semitic. Mm. Um, some of the Huey Long himself was not an anti-Semite, but some of the people with him were actually allies of Father Coughlin, that radio yes. priest in the North. All right, Billy Graham redefines fundamentalism as evangelicalism in a way, and. It's inclusive. He has Catholic priests come to his crusades to give spiritual counseling. That would not have worked in the South in the 1920s. And so Southern evangelicalism and Southern politics move to this, you know, different approach. That, again, I think we're seeing now the evangelical movement is once again splitting off and actually the more populist fundamentalist side, which tended to be more pro-Trump this time around, sure. is probably the, the big end of the, of the, of the demographics uh, in, you know, in terms of the church. While the, 
the more sort of theologically sophisticated and politically centrist or whatever, whatever words you want to use evangelicals are the smaller number. You're really focusing on uh, faith and religious identity and describing uh, the political affiliation of those in the Sun Belt, in the South, and what made up uh, a Republican Party, and particularly with Trump. What about um, the way a lot of uh, thought leaders and, and, and kind of analysts think about it in terms of ethnic identity? of the voter and, yeah. and, well, very and Hispanic much. voters. How does that all figure into it, particularly for uh, Republican and Republican politics? Well, again, I think one of the problems, if you have a, if, if, the, if the Republican party is, is sort of nailed to an old vision of the white South, um, it's, it's very hard to reach out. You know, that's the problem. I mean, I forget who the politician was. I want to say John Calhoun. I don't think it was him who said that, you know, the problem with South Carolina is it, and I can say this because I was born there, is it's uh, too small to be a, a nation and too big to be an asylum. And, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the, the South is that way. It, it, you know, it, 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 the white South has this identity, but it can't, it's not enough to build the country on or to, to dominate. So you have to think about coalitions and allies. And you, you, if, you, if you define yourself purely in terms of ethnic exclusivity, you won't be, you know, this is again, this is part of Billy Graham's idea. Right. If you spend all your time thinking about what makes you different from all the other Christians, you're gonna be limited in what you can accomplish. Uh, so can you get to that idea of a belief in heritage and ideas that is not ethnic exclusive. Another thing I think just to remember, people can be very harsh in judging a lot of people's attitudes about immigration. It's only been in the last 25 or 30 years that the American South has experienced mass inward migration. You know, not really, you know, certainly when I was a kid in the growing up in the Carolinas, there were very few people who were, you know, who were immigrant descended you had because sort of, they were coming to the coast they were coming from europe right. it wasn't it wasn't from after the, the civil war the south was dirt poor who would want to live there seriously mm -hmm. seriously uh, in south carolina the state motto they used to say was thank god for mississippi because <laughs> without, without mississippi south carolina would be at the bottom of every right right index so um you know that doesn't draw immigrants it's not big in industry it's a uh, you know, oh, great, I've come from Europe and now I have an opportunity to be a cotton sharecropper in the in Mississippi Delta. No. Don't have. <laughs> right. So now, though, now that the South has modernized and incomes have increased in this greater variety of jobs, it's an extremely attractive place for immigrants to come. And so communities that have like, you know, black and white that have, you know, 100, 200 years of essentially being like the descendants of the same people. Now let's, it's, you know, I'm not talking like, you know, a number of, of slurry jokes people used to make about the Appalachians when I was a right. kid. But um, uh, it's still, the South was, if not inbred, it was somewhat self-contained. And so and it's, suddenly, it's such a different place now, such a different right. place. Demographic change is not what you expect. And people are feeling defensive 
and people feel the pressure of immigration in a way the North actually did, you know, between about 1880 and 1920, when there was a mass wave of migration to the North. So it, it just, let's just drill down on that real quickly because, you know, uh, uh, Peggy Noonan actually wrote something recently on the point of immigration. She's thinking about the future Republican Party. Interested to get your reaction, fellow uh, Wall Street Journal uh, columnist, that the Republican Party at once could be opposed to illegal immigration um, and at the same time could be, you know, embrace immigrants. Those who have come to this country, and of course, those who, uh, in her word, you know, her, her analysis, legally. Um, do you think that's right? It's particularly talking about re Republicans, not just right. necessarily Republicans in, in, in the South, but just across the country. Well, I mean, I think, again, um, you know, if you think about the business wing of the Republican Party, it's always been very happy to get immigrants. Um, she wasn't talking about that group. She wasn't talking about the ones who, you know, need labor. Right. Uh, because actually the Republican Party traditionally was the strongest party for free immigration. Um, look, Peggy is one of the brightest and even more rare, one of the nicest people I've ever been lucky enough to meet. She is fabulous. Um, and immigration is, I don't you know, I'm wrestling with this because I definitely believe that immigrants have been and, and, and are good for the United States. And it would be, this would be, you know, just a rotten country if it was a bunch of Anglo-Saxons sitting around, um, you know, drinking, uh, drinking mead all day. Uh, uh, it's a good drink, would, I hear. <laughs> right. Uh, somebody, I, there was a thing going around on Twitter. What are Anglo-Saxon traditions? I said, bad food and plenty of it is... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I, can, I can say that, I suppose, as one of that, one of right. that tribe. But she, um, look, when the last time we had th this level of immigrants, in a, yeah. this percentage of American society being immigrants was in the early 1920s. And there was such a blowback that we ended up passing laws that kept immigration closed for like 40 years, including during the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she notes, I mean, she could throw out some statistics, I don't have them uh, kind of to my tongue, but the, the level, the numbers of, of immigrants in this country, uh, and part of the argument was they're here, their children are here, and the numbers are going to be, you know, so significant in terms of the percentage of total population. Right. No, it's absolutely true. A sliver of which are the ones that are debated so much in terms of, you know, uh, DACA or just straight right, up, right. you know, illegal. Right. But I, I do, I guess I would say that the thing to think about here is what you want is the greatest sustainable level of immigration. That is the greatest level of immigration that is compatible with the kind of stability and harmony of society, of the, you know, the existing society. And that would have, you know, so there might be something if, God forbid, we should go back into a Great Depression um, and you have unemployment of 25%, immigration would be a very unpopular thing at that time. Right. Um, yeah, and the distinction really is about integrating immigrants without being for more immigration, right? So, you know, that, that really is, is, is right. the approach. 
Well, I would also, you know, I think they're also, I think we can, I mean, you know, some countries have done this thing called the point system. Um, look, if you think about, there's some things where clearly we need all the help we can get. As our population ages, um, we're going to need like more doctors, right. um, more nurses. For that matter, we have bottlenecks in healthcare. One of the reasons healthcare is so expensive is because we have kind of an undersupply of skilled labor. You know, and, I mean, my brother's a doctor, so please don't listen to me when I say this, Phil, but um, <laughs> maybe if we had more doctors here, the price of healthcare might go down a bit for competition. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think, I think you can make a strong case for immigration that even people who are nervous about immigration would say, okay, this is good, this is good, this is good. Um, and then I think you, and I think, do think most Americans do actually rather strongly buy the idea that immigration per se is good for the United States. Every poll I've ever seen is pro-immigration. Let's talk a little bit about President Reagan and, and his brand of republicanism and, and, and uh, his approach to foreign policy and, and freedom more broadly, but I'll start with his view of America. I mean, you know, if you go to uh, the Reagan Library and, and situated right outside his office, the, the art that I suppose he chose and, and Nancy Reagan chose are as great, fantastic uh, pieces of, of, of art showing immigrants coming through Ellis Island. Yeah, that was kind of his vision of, of America. This you know this this melting pot that right you know, becomes somewhat of a cliche, but something that really animated his thinking and and the way he spoke of the United States. I mean, there is no Ellis Island today. There, there's no beautiful rendering of immigrants coming through you know JFK Airport or LAX or <laughs> anything like JFK that. JFK does not really lend itself to portraiture. Let's just say. <laughs> that's right. What is it? In that, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's there's a line where he says, "No one in any language on Earth has ever said as pretty as an airport." Right. <laughs> there is no Statue of Liberty to cat, you know, right. Uh, take your heart breath away when you right. when you go to JFK. Um, right, but it was um, look. I think it is a beautiful. You know, uh, clearly we are a nation of immigrants. And it's actually fantastic that in a sense, we've, we haven't just separated church from state in the United States, but we've separated nation from tribe. And when I think about American identity, what I say is going way, way back to the beginning, America, to be an American is always to have multiple identities. Right. So you were a South Carolinian or a Massachusettser, you know, and actually, for many years, those identities were stronger than U.S. identities. Um, and it was only gradually that the U.S. identity came to, to dominate. But even in colonial times, you had Americans of Dutch descent, Americans of German descent, of English descent, Scottish descent. They were always hyphenated before it became in vogue. Uh, exactly. You know. And Albion Seed is a terrific book about how immigrants from different parts of England actually had very different, had an enormous role in creating different American regional subcultures. What you're so, saying plays to the strength of the country, the ability to accommodate and integrate and pluralism. preserve those identities. Right, pluralism. I've been working on this book about the American relationship with Israel, and it led me very much to see that in America, uh, we've had a different approach to the question of the place of Jews in American society 
than, than in, even in European countries, because there the idea was, all right, and this goes back to Napoleon, I tell you, here's the deal. You give up Jewish personal law, you give up the idea that there is a Jewish nation, and you can be a French person of Jewish origin or Jewish I background. Um, and so the, but the, the Jewish people are not to be considered as a nation. In America- right. The emancipation was to emancipate you from being, you know, a Jew. A member of the nation. Right. You were saying you're supposed to become a member of the French nation. No one ever fully believed it because it's not fully true. Right. You know? uh, and that is a huge, you know, that I think contributed in a, in a significant way to later outbreaks of anti-Semitism. Right. But in America, our idea of what it means to be an American is, yeah, well, you know what? We've got Irish Americans and they have their own religion and not all Irish people believe in the religion, in their religion, but that's, you know, that's fine. And, you know, we've got all the, you're just one of a whole group of people in America, each of whom has this special relationship. But yet all bought into this system enshrined in our constitution, right? Uh, kind of led in, in terms of uh, our, where we're aspiring to achieve the, the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's, that's also been a piece of this, right? right? You keep your identity, but you buy into the system. Yeah, although again, I think, Here's a little bit of a difference. I mean, you know, I'm I'm from immigrants, although the immigrants came a bit longer ago, right? In in my case, than in some others. But um, it uh, growing up again, I never thought that being an American meant believing in certain ideas or buying some kind of a political program. I felt like I'm an American the way a French person feels like they're French. It's just I live here. I couldn't. Anywhere else I tried to go, they wouldn't let me come. Right. You know, it's like, this is the place, this, what is it Robert Frost said? Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, that's American. And that's the thing, that's everybody I grew up with. I, it wasn't until I went like up to the freezing cold North as you know, older kid, that I started to hear the idea that there is such a thing as you know, like uh, the American idea, or that there are un-American ideas. Mm -hmm. I thought the House Committee on Un-American Activities, I first heard that name, I thought, what's that? I mean, an American, they're good activities and bad activities, but an American activity is an activity that an American participates in. Uh, it, you know, so, 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 so you, you have that freezing New Haven winter, and, and which does not at all feel like home, and then it's ideas, that's home. That's right, right. And that, you know, it, you know, and that's actually, again, there's no better one way is not more American than the other or better American. But there are a lot of people who are either quite recent immigrants or feel like, you know, their, their family came into a movie that had already started. And so identify with America over this bridge of, of common ideas. Um, and, you know, so we have people in America have different ways of thinking about their Americanness. So don't let, let's talk about let, it, but it's very important. Let, well, let's pivot in terms of the ideas about Americanism and, and, and migrate to how Americans think about the world, something you write a lot about uh, and are expert in. Uh, and we'll go back to where we started with the different constructs of, of outlooks on US foreign policy. Talk to us about the Biden administration and how President Biden looks at the world 
uh, your piece, which I referenced earlier, uh, you wrote at the beginning of the year in Foreign Affairs, suggests that you know, Biden's trying to keep the Wilsonian uh, outlook uh, and approach together, but the world is, is truly not cooperating. Just kind of outline that a little bit, and I want to use that to, to talk about some of the challenges we're facing right now. Hmm. Okay, well, this the, the Wilsonian idea that we're all sort of, I suppose, in some ways, we're, the whole world is going to look more and more like the EU. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to sort of Western... Which right now everybody rolls their eyes at, but there was a point, perhaps... Well, not know, everybody 1990s. rolls their eyes at it. Not everybody rolls their eyes at it. You know, I think a lot of folks in the government right now and a lot of, you know, still like it. Those in the EU don't, right? I mean, what? they lost the UK. Eastern Europe wants out. They can't get their vaccine out. Eastern, and it's not exactly... Eastern Europe doesn't want out because being out would mean not having the money. What Eastern Europe wants is what we all want. They want the money, but they don't want the strings. There we go. Which is which is a very rational human perspective, <laughs> but sadly often hard to achieve. Well, anybody who's a parent is familiar with with dealing with that type of thinking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but in any case, the idea that the world is sort of moving toward a kind of harmonic convergence. And that will sort of, you know, that cultural differences won't matter very much. We're, um, we'll all become sort of more secular, more bureaucratic. Now, international affairs will be more and more governed by treaties and multinational know, institutions and all of this, right? The trouble is, it's not so much that American Jacksonians reject that idea, although they do by and large. And they did in 2016 in large right. part, right? Right, exactly. But it's that. Indians in India don't like this idea. Uh, Xi Jinping in China doesn't like this idea. The people who vote for Erdogan in Turkey don't like this idea. And it's not that they all have a common project that they're trying to build together. It's just that they don't want to be part of this kind of Hamas. They don't think that the West is the endpoint of human development that they want to conform to. And they don't want to give up their sovereignty in, in, in any way, right? And this no, is... In fact, as I point out, you know, a lot of the, the Western countries joined the UN and the EU to, to pool their sovereignty because they thought national sovereignty was bad for them. It led to wars and they couldn't get anything done. A lot of Asian countries and post-colonial countries joined these institutions to protect their sovereignty. Right. Keep the Europeans out. Or, right, to, to be able to limit what the UN can do. So they joined the Human Rights Council at the UN not to promote human rights, but to make sure that nothing gets through that council that causes them trouble. I want to drill down on this because I think the, the kind of, when people talk about this, they generally volunteer, well, if you're, you know, an authoritarian regime or, you know, you're one of these autocracies, um, a monarchy, then of course you're going to reject this Wilsonian multinational institutions, you know, kind of world government approach. But the first example you gave, Walter, was India, the world's largest democracy. In other words, just because you're not a Wilsonian doesn't necessarily mean that you're anti-democratic or you're not democratic. Did I get that right? And kind of, if you can focus on that, explain that for me. Well, again, a lot of people in India, mostly associated with the old Congress party and the old Congress governments will tell you that Modi is not a very good Democrat. I don't know, you know, 
I'm not following day-to-day -day Indian politics enough to, to have- It's a, a democratic government and they all generally in both parties have embraced, you know, uh, electoral right, but, politics and democratic institutions. Yes, but it's, again, India is, India is a very, there are a lot of Indian votes are delivered by who the landlord tells you to vote for. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very complicated place. Um, sure. And uh, I recommend that everyone who can go there and spend as much time there as possible. It's, you'll be surprised every day and you won't get tired of the food, which is also a good thing. <laughs> but in any case, or Turkey, Erdogan gets elected, you know, how free and fair those elections are, people can, can dispute. But yeah, it's not. Um, and sometimes, you know, authoritarians do have popular support. Mugabe didn't have support all the way through his period of power in, in Zimbabwe, but he did have a lot of support early on. Uh, so it's not uh, and of course, Reagan is famous for embracing Jean Kirkpatrick with her, uh, you know, who had a very nuanced view of authoritarian versus totalitarian. We'll work with those who are friendly. Right, but right, but also that, author that there's a difference between what authoritarians are doing in their societies and what totalitarians are doing in their societies. And I think that's, that's important and it is worth remembering. Um, uh, but in any case, there are too many countries in the world that don't want to end up in this kind of League of Nations, you know, European institutional bureaucratic modernism. Um, and we can't make people do it. The foreign minister of India uh, once said to me, it's always a great line to throw into something, right? He says, you know, if you Americans want to help protect us from China, that's great, and we're with you. But if you want to westernize us or Europeanize us, we are not interested in that at all. And this is something, again, in the Cold War, our most important allies were in Western Europe. Right. And so building Atlantic institutions like NATO and all of the things that we were doing, it was, it was what we culturally like and what they culturally like, and it worked. It was, you know, it was sometimes messy, but it worked. In Asia, where there's a tremendous sense to this day of resentment at colonialism. Right, the non-aligned movement, right? I mean, they're still non-aligned. Exactly. And there's, there's a fear. Again, I, I remember some time ago having a talk with an Indian friend, and I was saying, I don't understand, you know, why, why you keep wanting to hold America at arm's length. You know, look, we don't want to conquer you. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to annex you. We're not trying to convert you to Christianity. You know, can't we just be friends? Why can't we, why can't we say that word ally? Why is that right. so? Right. And difficult? what he said to me, he just shook his finger. He said, that's what the British said when they got here. <laughs> we just want to trade with you. So, um, you know, so there is a history here. And if, our, if the Indo-Pacific is going to be the center of gravity of our foreign policy, and I do think it needs to be, then we're going to have to think about, okay, what are the ideas, what are the values, what are the institutions that have an appeal in the place where our foreign policy really needs to build friendships? So let me answer that question just to provoke you, uh, because here we are on the Reaganism podcast, and the answer is obvious. It's freedom. Freedom wasn't a West, is not, 
certainly from Reagan's outlook, something that's limited to the West and an idea of the Western world. It truly believe it was a universal, it is and remains a universal uh, uh, right of all peoples that all people want. I mean, isn't that the free world? What would, would be the construct in which to work with an India, a Japan, a North Korea, as they, excuse me, a South Korea, as you, as you. Uh, yeah, North Korea, great. We work really <laughs> well with North Korea. Uh, look, it's, you know, I think everybody does want freedom, but not everybody thinks the same thing when they say the word freedom. Um, and, you know, one of the huge problems, for example, in American foreign policy was that in a lot of Asia, uh, the cause of nationalism, which was identified with freedom in people's minds, you know, got annexed by the communists. Uh, so that, you know, you really did have people in, in Vietnam fighting for Ho Chi Minh and the communists, feeling they were fighting for national freedom. The first thing you do is get the foreigners out. And then if we need to have any conversations about where we go for there, we'll do that. Right. It doesn't work that well with a communist party, but people felt that way. So you cannot, or again, in, in say Gaza, where George W. Bush really pushed to have elections, freedom meant Hamas for the people who voted there. And, and they, you know, they appreciated the freedom to vote for Hamas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, so, you know, it's correct that everybody wants freedom, but that is not the solution necessarily to all farm, you know, push the freedom button and it works. Do you, think you wrote something in that piece that uh, there's little public enthusiasm for promoting what well, you even write freedom abroad, but democracy abroad. If you look at the reasons Americans give for why they would be willing to send troops overseas, protecting human rights is pretty much the bottom of the list. So let's let's debate this for a couple of minutes in the time we have before we go to the uh, lightning round. Uh, I'm not debating the point that Americans don't want to put troops overseas to fight to deliver other people freedom. But Americans, at least the polling we've done at the Reagan Institute, generally support uh, the U.S. government standing up for human rights, certainly uh, uh, dealing with China, uh, Hong Kong in particular, uh, and Americans generally support having troops abroad, not to enter a hot fight, but to preserve prosperity and, and the peace we enjoy. So of the kind that we have in Germany or South Korea, uh, um, that is something Americans overwhelmingly, well, certainly majority, two thirds, generally support that. Yeah, but they only support it, you know, they, I wonder how, how many of them would support it if it involved the troops getting shot at. Correct, but that's an important distinction, right? right? There, there is a value. So, so, have... so Americans prefer pretending to stand for democracy. You know, well, they, 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 they support having a big elaborate pro-democracy float. They support, they support telling Mr. Putin, you're a really bad man. We dislike you, boo Putin. They support that. They even support like sanctions as long as it doesn't mean any American jobs go away. All right, this is true, right. it is real, okay? But unfortunately there are people in, in Moscow and in Beijing and in some other places who love calling a bluff, you know? And, oh, oh Mr. Obama, you have a red line, do you? Ding! Um, and so we, this is, I think, the change that's, that's happened in the world since 2015, more or less. 
when I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs about the return of geopolitics. Right, right. That, that now, it, you know, after, you know, during and even a, and after the Cold War, it was mostly, you know, there was the American presence was kind of uncontested. You went somewhere, there would not be, you know, they, they wouldn't attack your troops or you would issue a guarantee to Ukraine and that would be the end of the matter. You had deterrence by presence, for sure. Right, right. Now that has been lost. And we can, we can you know, I think it had something, to, I think in some ways when George W. Bush essentially did nothing about the Russian invasion of Georgia. The Georgia invasion, sure. Yeah, that, that was the message to all predators everywhere that, that, it is no, you know, the, the perhaps that was the big, the, the, the biggest casualty or one of the one of well, almost the biggest, but one of the uh, less focused on but most significant casualties of being distracted in Iraq by not getting that right. Right. But again, you know, the, I mean, it's interesting that that when the war in Iraq changed from being uh, the war to get rid of Saddam's nuclear weapons, which had huge support to being a war to build democracy in Iraq. That was actually one, that was a very profound, felt as a very profound betrayal, I think, by a lot of the, a lot of the Republican base. You know, I think the rise of Trump in some ways, as well as the rise of Putin, can be, you know, as, as a hostile adversary. But I I guess where I'm trying to get at to work in your consciousness, so I I take the point about the limits of U.S. support, that is, the American people's support for promoting freedom abroad, right? But that Jacksonian element, right, or even that Hamiltonian element that wants that free trade, that wants business to be protected, would support U.S. presence and leadership overseas because not only does it, uh, that that the freedom that it provides benefits us at home, benefits our prosperity. Hamiltonians support that, Jacksonians don't, Mm -hmm. okay? Jacksonians, unless if we're under attack, Jacksonians are willing well, to do anything yeah. everywhere. But if we're not under attack, like right now, okay, we're not, nobody's actually attacking the United States. People are chiseling away at the American system and termites are eating at the foundation. But, you know, the World Trade Center isn't on fire in the middle of New York. Right. Jacksonians actually behave a lot like Jeffersonians when they don't perceive a threat. That 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 that's makes sense. My point is that the the polling that we've done suggests that the majority of Americans fall within the Wilsonian and the Hamiltonian approach. Right. On this I issue. think that's an artifact of the questions that you answer, the, the way you pose the questions, honestly, because I see a lot of other polls that tell me very different things. All right. Well, we got to get we we got we got to get you reviewing our, our questions for the future. Right. Uh, but no, but we can't, I'm curious we, that very often, you know, do you think America should stand up for freedom? You're going to get a big plus on that. Right, right. You know, uh, you have, but but you won't necessarily, you'll be surprised when, you know, you're in a jam and you look behind you. All of those people who checked yes on that poll are not behind you. <laughs> well, so certainly if you're if 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 the follow question is do you go to would you go to war over it, you'll see a big shift. But there's a lot of space in between. And that that's where I'm trying to, to, to get but again, to. But what I'm saying is that's where you get that's but that's what shifted is bluffs used to work better than they work now. And I get I guess well I got what one more exchange in this, and then we'll go to our lightning round. Bluffs work less well, which is why you see Georgia 
which is why you see Ukraine, to your point. But there won't be a bluff if it involves a NATO country, right? And there may oh. not be a bluff if it involves Taiwan. We hope, right? you know, if, if Trump were reelected, I'm not sure. Um, For which one, the Baltics or Taiwan or both? All. Um, Interesting. You know, because it, actually, if you look at the NATO alliance, um, it doesn't actually say that we are treaty bound to go to war if a NATO country is, is attacked. What it says is that the NATO members must consult their constitutional processes. The You're Senate, explaining Article 5 right now. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's no obligate. Well, certainly, it's, it's, the Senate wouldn't have ratified the NATO treaty if it took the war making power out of Congress's hand. And it would have arguably been unconstitutional as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right. Although, well, you no, know, if a treaty, you know, a treaty is supreme law of the land. So presumably, but you could, you, there's not been a single day on which you could have gotten a two thirds majority in the Senate for ratification of that treaty. So a lot depends on circumstances. You know, no, if, no doubt. Pol if Poland attacked Russia in a fit of madness, and then Russia attacked Poland back. Who knows? Well, right. Presumably and, the facts matter here, right? The facts matter. But that, again, that actually changed. You know, NATO is, is not quite the rock that people have taken it as being. Um, and this is so, this is very dicey. And no doubt. I'm not in favor of it being dicey. I wish we had done the things that would have you know, kept us from getting here. But I think we have to look really hard at what we've got and think very, very carefully about what we're doing. That would be- well, and, and, and if any reader of your uh, column would know that's, that's what you do on a, on a weekly basis. Let's shift now uh, to the lightning round. Uh, we have Walter Russell Mead, columnist of the Wall Street Journal. This is where we ask our guests their favorite book about Reagan favorite Reagan speech, and favorite Reagan quote. You can give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have? Well, I think my favorite book is the, you, I think you had him on the podcast not long ago, the, the book about James Baker by uh, Peter and Susan Glass. Okay. You know, that, I just, that's a terrific book. It's not a biography of Reagan, but I think it gives you a very good picture of how Washington worked and also what it meant to work for Reagan. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's a very rich book. I think speech and quote are going to be the same, it's, and it's going to be so boring and predictable. It's, uh, you know, the tear down the wall speech, I think, was just phenomenal. I should say that in part, that, that speech was given on my birthday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a, a, a moment of where rhetoric uh, kind of mattered and yeah. impacted, didn't it? Well, that's right. And that was, um, you know, and again, the values do matter. You just have to understand where, you know, because again, you think about the 1930s, when the United States just had this high moral tone as Japan was conquering as much of China as it could. We will not recognize it. It is so bad. It is so bad. Right. <laughs> um, okay. That's where I worry that the American policy of demonstrating high moral dudgeon without a real will to do something about the things that are causing you dudgeon, do something effective, um, that's, I worry, 
that what that does is it actually incentivizes the predators. No doubt. So, so the, the weakness of Wilsonianism is that, you know, they have the, 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 the sweeping rhetoric and, and the moral claims and they could back it up with a, a bunch of diplomats with nothing behind it, as opposed to the speech you just referenced, where there was a full on arsenal that the president of the United States, President Reagan built up for years prior to delivering right. that one line. And where the questions that Gorbachev was basically asking is, what do I have to do to get out of this confrontation with you? And that was the answer, tear down the wall. So yeah, that's where we need folks to be is the question where they are asking, how do we end this confrontation? We don't like it. It's not making us happy. Because the cost imposing strategy is working to our benefit. Right, and we have not, I think with, with either, neither Russia nor China, have we come anywhere close to that. Walter Russell Mead, a pleasure to have uh, you on the show. We look forward to welcoming you back again, either when the next book on the U.S. relationship with Israel comes out or perhaps prior to it, it'd be great too. Great, well, thank you.